This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The door's closed. We're ready to go into the Word this morning. Excuse me. So if you come with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we need to be uh, today. We've been going uh, through this uh, particular book, and this is where we are <coughs> starting this morning. So Ephesians 6, reading from verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's just stop there. From Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to Ephesians 6, 9, uh, we have the three areas where we are to live out our Christian lives the most. Number one, in our marriages, our relationships between husbands and wives. Number two, in our homes, our relationships between our children. And thirdly, in our jobs, a relationship between employers and employees. Now, the theme of submission runs throughout these three areas. And last time, we looked at submission in relation to husbands and wives submitting one to the other, wives submitting to their husbands, and both husbands and wives submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we want to turn our attention to children submitting, obeying their parents and employees or slaves, in reference to the scripture, submitting to their employers or their masters. And just the way that Paul addressed the relationship between husband and wives in the context of the Greco-Roman world in which he and they lived and we saw that how the Christian view of marriage was so radically different than anything that they would see around them or anything actually that they had grown up with. And so it was with the relationship between children and parents. Again, this too was radically different than anything they would see around them or any way they had been brought up themselves. And again, the first century Greco-Roman world uh, was a world of slaves and masters. I mean, the Roman Empire had millions of slaves. Uh, uh, and we would not want that to be the template 
today for employees and employers. So with that in mind, let's just begin then to look and see what the scriptures say about the relationship between children and parents within a Christian family especially. But before we do even that, uh, let me give you and give you the context. Let me tell you what it was like back in those pagan Roman Racco world. The Romans had a law called Patria Potestas. Uh, and, and the Latin Patria Potestas means the power of the Father. And this law was a very powerful law within all Roman society. That is to say that a Roman father had absolute power over his children. Absolute power. So as long as the father was alive, the child never really became of age. As long as the father lived, he had absolute power over his children. So much so, in fact, that a father could sell his son to be a slave if he wanted to. Or he could put him in chains and make him a slave in his own household. Actually, a father could pronounce the death sentence on his own children if he so desired. And so a Roman father had tremendous power and sway over his children. In fact, when a child was born in a Roman family, that baby was laid at the father's feet. And if he picked the baby up, it meant it was accepted. But if he stepped back and refused to pick it up, it meant it was rejected. And many baby girls, especially, were rejected. And either they'd be left to die or horribly those who were child traffickers could come and take that child and get it raised up to either be a slave or a prostitute. That's what it was like in Roman society. And so, try to imagine these new believers. That's what they had been brought up with. That's all they had ever known. That's all they had ever seen. And Paul taught them about Christian marriage, and it was so radically different than anything they've known. Now he's teaching about parenting. And so you can imagine this was a, a big thing for them to hear. And so up to now, a Roman father could do whatever he liked with his children. It was at his whim. Whatever way he desired, he could do whatever he liked. And there was no law against that. The law of Patria Potestas ruled supreme. And that was accepted in all Roman society. And so we can now see how Christianity was the best thing that ever happened to children. And actually it was the best thing that ever happened to women. And Jesus had a lot of time for both women and children. You remember even Jesus' disciples, even the Hebrews, even Jesus' disciples, when the children gathered around them, they wanted to shoo them away. And Jesus says, no. He says, let them come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he took them up on his knee and he blessed them. And so society was quite different. Uh, so now in the, in the context of a Christian family here in Ephesians, there is still an expectation that a child ought to obey their parent, but now it is within a loving, caring family framework. 
much different than that authoritarian, uh, terrible rule that a father had over his children in those days. And so this new relationship with parents and children should reflect the relationship between us as Christians and our Father God. It is the most natural thing for a child, for any child, to be expected to obey their parents. It's universal. It's in every culture. It's in every race. It's in every country. But Christianity has a prescribed way, a scriptural way, a biblical way, a model that we would do well to emulate as Christian parents. Now, too many Christians take their method of parenting from the world's book instead of from God's book. God has laid out ways that he expects us to raise our children. And if we take our model from the world, you can be sure we're going to get it wrong. Absolutely wrong. We need to take it from God's perspective. And so Paul then sets out for us some very basic but very necessary ways in order to do this. But someone may say, but we're not living in Paul's day. David, you're talking about more than two millenniums ago. We're not living in that era anymore. Fathers wouldn't get away with that anymore. You're speaking of Roman times. Yes, that's true. But unless you've been living on Mars for this past 20, 30 years, you could not help but notice how the governments and authorities and educators and lawmakers and social workers has got tremendous sway and power in how we run our families. And that's increasing all the time. They have got a huge say. And more and more, our ability and our responsibility to raise our children is being continually eroded to the point, to the very point where kids can have abortions, kind of contraceptives, kind of the morning after pill, without a parent's express permission, and often without even their very knowledge. And this is the 21st century. And so Scotland, for instance, has been trying to bring in a law, uh, like guardianship, where every minor in Scotland was to be appointed a guardian above and beyond the parents. And this supposedly was to, to prevent abuse. And so a, a, a guardian could be a nurse, it could be a doctor, it could be a, a school teacher, it could be a policeman, it could be a professional. And that child was to report to that guardian and that guardian was to talk to that child to see what was happening in the home. And thankfully so far that has been fought against and has been shot down, but they're still trying. And that's how bad things have got. Now, can you imagine how abused that system could become? Where your child could go to somebody else and complain about you? Can you imagine if your child says, I don't want to go to Sunday school. I don't want to go to church. I'm five. I can make up my own mind. And say that to your guardian. And then, you're, then the government comes in and say, you don't dare. That child doesn't want to go to church. We're going to make sure you can't do that. And we've got a law against you. And so it's open to all kinds of abuse. 
And so it's being fought. And, and so far, it hasn't been enacted in law yet, but they keep fighting for it. And thankfully, there's those who fight against it. There are politicians who would dearly love to have parental responsibility taken away and handed over to the government. And you're seeing the first signs of that in Scotland today. Of course, all of this would make it easier for the child not to submit to the parents, not to obey the parents. Because you know that any, any child will, will push the boundaries. It doesn't take a child, it's not very old to it says no. Where did that come from? But that's, that's human nature. That's the old nature that's there. So it wouldn't take very long to that child to get up a wee bit and think, well, I've got the law on my side. So I, I'm not going to do that. And there's nothing you can do about it. <coughs> yes, there are parents, we know this, who have been abusive to their children and authorities have had to step in, rightly so. But we also know that there are authorities who take their mandate far too far and have overstepped it wildly. And they become very high-handed and heavy-handed. You know, most people, if you give them a modicum of power, they're going to abuse it at some point. And boy, it is being abused. Totalitarian governments love control of children. And every totalitarian government, both ancient and modern, has pushed that idea of taking control away from the parents and they control. Hitler Youth, I don't know if you ever studied Hitler Youth or seen it on television about it. It started off kind of parents naively thinking, you know, this is like going to the BB or the Scouts or the Guard Guys or whatever. And it started out kind of like that, where it was fun and games and it was great and weekend camps and everybody was happy. It seemed to be a great idea. But Hitler had in mind, he wanted an army that would be totally obedient. And his idea was, let's get the kids and let's condition them. And then after a while, those same innocent little children that begun continually to be separated from their parents and being told that the Reich, that Hitler and the Reich, that was the power, that's the thing that you've got to obey. Not your parents, but this government. And it got to the stage where those kids, to toughen them up, they would get them to fight each other, fist fight each other, and hurt each other, and they dare not cry. That was a sign of weakness to do that. And boy, they did toughen them up. And then they became eventually Nazi stormtroopers who would kill without any feeling or any compunction. They just would, they had no feelings left. They were just so hardened. And that was the idea. And so you can say, well, Paul was talking about 2,000 years ago. That doesn't apply today. Really? What about Muslims who kill their own children and call it honor killing? Because a son or a daughter wants to marry outside Islam. And it's such a dishonorable thing that they're prepared to kill their own children. That's happening today. Not 2,000 years ago. Today in the 21st century. So the Bible's very relevant it speaks into our situations today. So let's get back to the biblical model. 
God commands children to be obedient to their parents. Now, obviously, there's going to be exceptions to that rule. For example, if a parent wishes their child to do something that is wrong, that is wicked, that is completely against all things that is decent uh, and, uh, then, and just, then it should not be expected for that child to carry that out. Or if their parents want the child to violate God's laws and that child, whatever age it may be, knows what God's law is and they want to violate that, then that child should not be expected to violate God's law if it's a Christian child. It's not good for any child to violate God's law, but if it's a Christian child, it should not be expected to violate uh, the known word of God. And so parents, whether Christians or not, should not expect their children to do things that is even against even good nature, never mind God's law. Now, whenever a child uh, reaches into young young adulthood, then a parent needs to recognize that and deal with them accordingly. And this is where it gets a bit tricky because all of us who's beyond young adulthood know what we were like as young adults and how we wanted to flex our muscles and spread our wings and do our own thing and put our parents through the ringer many times uh, so there's a bit of that in all of us. That's the old nature wants to do that. Plus, as part of growing up, you want to experience, you want to make your own mind up, you know. And so parents has got this balancing act going on. What's allowed, what's not allowed. And as long as they're under your roof, then you may have a few house rules. You know, you've got to be in at a certain time or whatever. You've got to tidy up your room. Big deal. You know, there's things you've got to do. I know that bigger families, uh, I know some people who've got big families, and they said that every child has got to do something, otherwise that would be chaos in here. So they all got a job to do, a chore. However, we have to be realistic. And sometimes parents are unrealistic in their expectations of their young adults and just get ridiculously heavy-handed. Uh, and that becomes not a good thing, but a, a bad thing, actually. And so a balance is required. We can't expect the impossible. Uh, and every child is different, and every young adult is different. So we need to know our children and know what, what we can do and what we're just not going to be able to do. So instead of unquestioned obedience... Uh, then we need to offer some kind of explanation of why I'm saying no to this. Sometimes it's not just enough just to say no because I say no. Sometimes we need to to give a good explanation so that it's going to be better for them and it's going to be better for you and it's going to be better for everybody for them not to do certain things. But at least you've got to give an explanation. And so this is an awesome responsibility. When a child comes into your life, (laughs) <laughs> then that's a big, big role. That's the biggest role you're ever going to have in life is to raise that child up. And particularly as a believer, to raise that child up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so the Bible expects children to obey their parents. 
And while they're small, then we can, to the, for the most part, we can get them to do that. But then there comes that age whenever something changes and we've got to think a little bit differently and handle them a little bit. They're not three or four-year-old anymore. They're 15, 16. So we've got to look at it a bit differently. And if you're a parent, God willing, then that day is going to come if their little ones are going to grow up and then you're going to have to deal with it. And maybe this is why Paul also says, not just about obeying your parents, but honoring your parents. We're commanded to honor our parents. In chapter 6, again, verse 1, 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. So Paul is actually, although he's quoting the fifth commandment of the ten, the Decalogue in the Old Testament, but he says it's the first one with promise, and it is. And so the promise is that if we honor our parents, generally speaking, it'll go well with us and we'll live long on the earth. Now, all of us probably known somebody who did honor their parents and they died young. They took an illness and died young. So generally speaking, it's not a rule for every single time, but generally speaking, this is the way that God blesses those who honor their parents. Of course, it must follow that parents live honorably, that parents live in such a way that it's easy to honor our parents. And not all parents live honorably. And sometimes children have a tough time giving honor. Sometimes they have a tough finding, time finding something to honor in their father or their mother. And that's too bad. But even if that is the case, then as particularly as a Christian young person, we should try to find something in that life that we can honor, even though we may have to scratch your head and think about it. But we can try to find something, somehow, that we can say, well, at least that in their life is worth a mention. That's worth honoring, even if everything else isn't. And so honoring our parents uh, is an important thing to do and try as much as we can to be able uh, to honor our parents. Uh, and it's a lovely thing if you can do that. And most of us, let's face it, most of us is in the position where we can honestly give some honor to our parents. And perhaps this is the reason why Paul goes on to say something to the parents. Verse 4, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And in Colossians 3, which is a companion book of Ephesians, verse 20 and 21, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, he seems to be singling out fathers. But mothers can provoke their children to wrath equally as well. But if the father is the head of the home, and I think Paul has already made that clear, then he, above all, should not provoke the children to wrath. 
In other words, don't be a big bully with your children. Don't provoke them to wrath. Don't forever keep winding them up. Because with discouragement will come resentment. And they'll get it into their head, there's nothing I can do will ever please him or her. No matter what I do, they'll never be satisfied. It'll never be enough. And let me tell you, that's not a good place to be. And many children become discouraged and disheartened and they just give up. They'll say, what is the point? No matter what I do, it's never enough. Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Believe me, if you do, you'll pay the price. It will affect your child, but one day it'll come back to bite you. So, all children need boundaries. They need parameters. They do. And we, as parents, are the ones to set that. And if we don't set those boundaries and parameters as our children are growing up, somebody out there is going to set them for us. And there'll be different boundaries and different parameters. So we need to take responsibilities within reason. Again, within reason. And why we need to be strict in certain areas, but we should never be so strict Again, that everything we do or everything they do is not pleasing to us and no matter what they do, we'll never be satisfied. No, that's not the boundaries we're talking about here. And so children need boundaries. I just read a little thing, I'll read it to you the other day. It says, in a play school in one town that sat right next to a corner of a busy road, a little school had a nice area which the children could play. At the break, they would huddle up right up against the building. The cars whizzing past frightened them. And so a steel fence was erected around the entire playground. The fence did not limit their freedom. It actually expanded it. Children need fences, for they feel more secure having the discipline of clear boundaries. And they will push those boundaries to see what they can get away with. And, and that's where the, where the conflict comes in with our kids, isn't it? Because they're always pushing boundaries. But we know those boundaries are good. And there's a limit to what they can do. And we're trying to give them limits and parameters until they're able enough to handle what's beyond that boundary. And so we need to be able to do this. Children thrive on encouragement. They thrive on encouragement. So where and when you can, make a point of encouraging your children. If they're good at something, let them know they're good at it. If they're not so good at it, don't say you're stupid, you're a dunderhead. I, I know a father whose daughter was numerically dyslexic, couldn't count. And the father kept saying, you're stupid. You're a dunderhead. You're daft. What are you like? Not knowing that his child just couldn't get it. 
Every time she looked at numbers, they were all jumbled up until the teacher told her and gave her some tests and then told the father, your child isn't stupid. Just as a child can be dyslexic with letters, your child is dyslexic with numbers. Now she's married and has two children, and to this day she struggles with numbers, which is far from stupid and daft. And the father's understood that and he's learned that lesson. So we need to be careful about how we lift them up or how we put them down. And so let's encourage our children. On the other hand, and this is all about balance, on the other hand, some parents are so scared of losing their children's affection that they just cave in on everything. They just let them have free reign on every area. Well, let me tell you, you're going to spoil that child. And that child will grow up as a spoiled adult until they get into the real world and nobody else is going to treat them that way. But they think that they ought to be treated that because that's the way they've ever been treated. But when they get into the real world out there, they're not going to be treated that way and they're going to be in trouble. <coughs> We're to bring our children up, Paul says, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But then there's some parents, even some Christian parents, say, well, I'm not going to push Christianity on them. I'll just let them find out for themselves. I'll let them make up their own mind. Well, here's a newsflash for you. There's a ton of people out there who's going to push their agenda on your child, whether you want it or not, whether you even know or not. So Christian parents, it is our duty before God to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, now let me say, in case you're feeling guilty here, when they get to a certain age, then they have to make up their mind what they're going to do with the teaching and the training that you put into them. They could totally reject it. They could walk away from it, and many has. But don't blame yourself on that. You've done your best. You've done your part. They've got to an age where they have to take personal responsibility for any walk they're going to have with God or not going to have with God. You can only go so far in this, and then at one point, they have to walk that walk or not walk that walk. But at least you have absolved yourself and you have done your responsibility. Are you still with me? Samuel was a godly, godly prophet in the Old Testament. God didn't allow one of his words to fall to the ground. But his sons weren't like that. His sons weren't again. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, was the good son of a bad father. But he was the good father of a bad son. There's no guarantees. All we can do is our best before God to put that out there. At some point, they got to receive it and run with it or not. But that comes to the point that's between them and God. Next couple of verses deals with the relationship between slaves 
and masters and referencing it to us, employees and employers. Hmm. Now, in Bible days, you could become a slave for a number of reasons. You could become a slave because you've been taken captive. And as I said earlier, I mean, Rome had many, many slaves, millions of them. Every country they took, they always took some back as slaves. Rome was built by slaves. The Colosseum was built by slaves. You could become a slave by being born a slave or born to a slave. You could become a slave, particularly in the Hebrew context, by indenturing yourself. In other words, if you couldn't pay your debt, then for a agreed period of time, you could work for somebody, you know, like a hard hand, until the person felt that debt's been paid off. You worked that debt off. And if you were working through that debt as an indentured slave, and every seven years, then you would be free to go. And every 70th year, which is the year of Jubilee, then every debt was cancelled and every slave was set free. So there was a fairness God had built into that. Now, Hebrews had also slaves that weren't Jews, that weren't Hebrews. But even those, they had to treat with the utmost care. They were not allowed to be harsh or cruel with them. God set laws for that. And so it's not the Greco-Roman type of slavery. Under the Greek-Roman system, which many of these now Christians had been slaves and still are slaves, that under that system, a slave had no rights, none whatsoever. They were just treated as a, a piece of machinery or an animal to do a job. They were just chattel. That's all you were. He had no standing. He had no rights. He couldn't do anything about it. They could do whatever they like with you. They could whip you, beat you, kill you, whatever. And there's nothing you could do about it. And culturally, Roman society embraced that. They loved to have slaves. And the more slaves you had, the greater status you had. And so that was culturally built into them. There was nothing unusual in that. Too bad for the slaves, though. Tough for them. And so you can imagine they were often treated unjustly and harshly. There was no unions in those days. There was no labor rights movement. Nobody was going to stand up for you. And interestingly, isn't it, that neither Paul or any of the apostles actually fought that system in that day because the might of Rome was so powerful to take up resistance against that and you were on a losing battle. In fact, it wouldn't really be to the, to the 19th century to slavery uh, became more or less obliterated until today, again, we're having trafficking, which is a form of slavery, only a different name. So what does Paul do? He tells them to submit. Not easy to do, is it? To submit. Now, of course, if you take this in the context of employers and employees, 
And then we do have rights. And there are laws. So things have changed somewhat in that respect. And, uh, but it's only in recent times, for instance, that minimum wage has been brought in. You know, the 1800s, they're putting wee children up chimneys to clean them. You know what I mean? So you don't, you don't have to go too far back into history to see that, <laughs> that things wasn't good. And then you had slavery in America, of course, for many years. Caused the civil war between the North and the South. And so Paul taught submission. Verse 5, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. He adds that. They're not your masters spiritually, Christian slaves, but they're your masters according to the flesh. So, be obedient. I mean, Jesus in other contexts has rendered unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Be obedient to your master, those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Serve them as you were serving Christ. They may not treat you Christ-like. They're certainly not going to treat you like Jesus would treat you, but you serve them as if you're serving Jesus. Big ask, isn't it? But that's the situation that we're in. And so these new Christian slaves... Uh, I, I suppose they could easily see themselves, well, well we're, we're children of the king now. I mean, Paul already told them at the beginning of Ephesians, we're heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. And so they could have resented even more so the fact that they were slaves. He says, well, I, I, I'm not a slave. I'm, I'm, Christ is my king. And I'm, I'm kicked against that. Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't kick against it. Submit to them as unto Christ. With sincerity of heart. So something has to happen in the heart to do this, to really change in the heart. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. In other words, not just when the boss is looking. Not with eye service. Not bluffing your way until the boss arrives. Listen, I worked in year for years in, in, in jobs. I remember one factory I worked in, and there was a lot of bluffing going on, let me tell you. And then the word came down, the boss is coming. And then everybody was busy because the boss had come in. <laughs> but it was just eye service, just men pleasers. We're just bluffing our way. Verse 6, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as unto the Lord and not unto men. Three times in those two verses, he says, as unto the Lord, as unto Christ. He's trying to get it through to them. The only way you'll be able to do this, to serve them, masters, is if you were serving Christ, not them. Do you go into work thinking, I'm going to serve the Lord today in here? 
I suspect not for many. I have an opportunity today to do my job as if I was doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but you don't know my boss. We'll come to your boss in a minute. No matter how bad your boss is, he's not as bad as a Roman boss. He can't flog you and whip you and put you in chains or kill you. Peter, in agreement with Paul, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20, says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, so not all of them are bad. Some are good and gentle. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So in other words, the standard for believers is entirely different. Entirely different. Different way of looking at things different lifestyle, different way of working, different way of parenting, different way of living our married lives, different. Then in verse 8 he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. The Lord will repay and reward. So here's Paul's final word to them on the subject. Verse 9, a new master's employer's do the same things to them. Give up threatening. <laughs> Give up threatening. Don't bully your employees. Because some bosses feel the only way I'm going to get this done is just by bullying everybody. Well, they might do it, but hate you in, your, in their hearts. And it doesn't make for a very good atmosphere to work in. New masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality in, with him. Yet both got the same boss. And both one day will give an account to the same boss. And he's not partial. He's fair and equitable. And so whether it's submitting, wives submitting to their husbands or children submitting to their parents or employees submitting to their employers, it is always as unto the Lord. And that's what makes it doable. That's what makes it worthwhile. And sometimes that's the only thing. Now, having said all of that and you hate your job and you can't stand it, then look for another one. And that's fair enough, isn't it? Let me finish by saying this. A Sunday school teacher asked a group of children in her class, why do you love God? She got a variety of answers. But the one she liked best was from a boy who said, I suppose it just runs in the family. <laughs> if it runs in the family, it's a good thing, isn't it? Young people are starting to date too early nowadays. The other day, one mother was overheard telling her son, Now remember, Tommy, 
I want you back in the house when the big hand is in 12 and the little hand is in 9. <laughs> You're a bit slow to mark together, aren't you? You're still thinking, mm. So, Christian parents, there's a few house rules for believers to raise up their children. Do your best. Put your best into them, knowing that when they grow up to a certain age, they have to make up their own mind. But at least you can say, Lord, I did my best. I have no regrets that way. I did my best. Yes, I made mistakes. Didn't always get it right. But generally, I did the best I could to put the truth into their hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that your word instructs us in every area of life. And Lord, if we find ourselves in one of these positions today, then give us the grace to be able to handle the situation. Give us the strength and the knowledge and the wisdom to raise our children, the admonition of the Lord, to be able to work in the workplace with the right attitude, to be able to handle the awkward and difficult situations that arise, always, always, always looking to you and doing our work and raising our kids as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.